Welcome to The Culture Bar, a panel discussion podcast exploring, dissecting and shedding light on important topics in the arts and music world which matter to you. Welcome everybody and uh, today we're recording a podcast celebrating women in music for release to coincide with International Women's Day on the 8th of March. I'm Lydia Connolly, I'm a director and head of artist management at Harrison Parrott the International Arts Management Company established now more than 50 years ago. Uh, My guests are Sarah Alexander, Chief Executive and Artistic Director, National Youth Orchestra of Great Britain, named Orchestra Manager of the Year in the 2015 Association of British Orchestras Rheingold Awards and awarded an OBE in the 2018 New Year's Honours List. When accepting that award, Sarah spoke of the National Youth Orchestra being unique. Through the groundbreaking initiatives brought in under Sarah's stewardship, its teenage musicians have continued to share their knowledge and love of orchestral music with thousands of other teenagers, both encouraging others musically and bringing musical inspiration directly into the lives of many who may never have heard a live orchestra before. I'm also delighted to be joined by James Murphy, Chief Executive of the Royal Philharmonic Society, And before that, he was Managing Director of Southbank Symphonia, previously Communications Director at National Youth Orchestra, so already kind of partner in crime with Sarah. He made Southbank Symphonia the first UK orchestra to hire an equal number of male and female guest conductors and substantially raised the proportion of music it performed by women. His advocacy for gender equality continues at the RPS whose Women Conductors Programme has given over 500 women the chance to try their hand and further their skills at conducting. And last but not least, Dobrinka Tabakova, multi-award winning composer, born in Bulgaria and has lived in the UK for over 25 years. As well as writing extensively for the concert hall, she's also composed for film and dance projects. And amongst her commissioners are the Royal Philharmonic Society, BBC Radio 3 and the European Broadcasting Union. Her music is performed worldwide and her debut profile album String Paths on ECM Records was nominated for a Grammy in 2014. In 2017, she was appointed composer in residence with the BBC Concert Orchestra. So thank you everybody for coming along today. And uh, as I said at the start, we're here to celebrate women. Uh, women who lead creatively in music. So uh, the obvious question to start with, I suppose, is how has that creativity found expression, especially during the last 12 months when traditional live concert giving has been silenced to such an enormous extent? Now, I know you've all been incredibly busy this last year. I mean, it's one of the great ironies, isn't it? That while the concert halls of the world have been largely silent, we've been working like crazy behind the scenes. So what are the standout uh, moves forward in, in musical expression that you've witnessed and that you've been a, a party to and who has especially inspired you? Um, where shall I start, Sarah? Why don't you kick us off? It's an obvious thing to say, but who I am especially inspired by is all the young people in the organisation, in the orchestra, and how quickly they've been ready to adapt. There are so so many 
themes of young people that have inspired me. First of all, how quickly young, these young people who are so passionate about their agency and their autonomy and their getting on with things in the world accepted the responsibility to go home and be quiet. We should all give young people credit for that, the responsibility they took to do as they were asked to do, which is absolutely the opposite to what you want to be doing as a young person. And then how stuck into conversation they were with us about how we would make our time online purposeful. So beyond let's pick some repertoire and multi-track it, was actually how do we make these projects meaningful and when we're playing on our own in our bedrooms to contribute to a multi-track, what are we thinking and feeling that makes us part of a community? And then a move to creativity, which has been really fascinating to see. So just a couple of projects, we did an Ode to Joy project where young people all played Ode to Joy on their doorsteps at the same time, but in so doing galvanized 44,000 other people to join in, or certainly that's how many people had downloaded the music from the website, watched the video preparation videos they've made. So although they were completely isolated from one another and on their own doorsteps and, and their audiences might have been, you know, their mum in the kitchen, they nonetheless profoundly galvanised and made a campaign of music making happen for many, many other people. So that uh, purposefulness, which we really think is that put at the heart of the National Youth Orchestra was really present from the get-go in the online work we've been doing. Um, and just recently, completely opposite extreme, young people have just been making music from scratch. So musicians who would normally be coming in absolutely to play notes and already written and be very busy with the responsibility for bringing the past to life have actually spent days and days working with each other in groups saying, okay, we've got to make a piece of music, how are we going to do that? being incredibly creative and turning Zoom actually into a very creative and interesting space. And another key project was uh, for us where young people really inspired us was in the summer when just after all the Black Lives Matter uh, marches and the, the whole movement in America, we were talking to young people about what we should spend our summer doing. This was when we were in this sort of transition. We can't do live work. Shall we carry on multi-tracking? How many more Jupiters do we do? Let's speak to young people about what they care about at the moment and what's on their mind. So they came back loud and clear, what we care about and what's on our mind is whose voices are heard in classical music. And in fact, yeah, it was a very potent theme for them. And so we did a big project called Mighty River with the composer Erilyn Wallen, which unlocked a whole lot of research and discovery of other composers of color. And so too many things too quickly, but essentially young people it's it's quite incredible the the amount of creativity and the way that young people in particular have adapted and been so resilient and thought well what can we do with this there are many many things we can't do like you said and they took responsibility for those restrictions they placed on themselves but then within that have found ways to reach out and access and actually make something positive and it's a it's a terrible cliche, isn't it? When life gives you lemons, you make lemonade. But I, I think there have been so many brilliant examples of that over this last 12 months. To Brinker, as a composer, I know one or two composers I've spoken to who have, on the one hand, embraced the possibility of being quietly at home and composing and not interrupted by the need to run around on airplanes and all the rest of it. But how have you found that? And has your approach to your own writing been 
specifically changed in, in this last 12 months? I mean, we're all thinking of new things, aren't we? We're all asking different questions of ourselves. What's your, what's your personal experience of that? I feel I've said this probably quite a few times, but I feel that as a composer, lockdown is just second nature. <laughs> So, uh, so the past few months haven't been that different to normal working life for me personally. So uh, um, I've enjoyed it greatly. I've had the time to just be quiet and concentrated. Um, but there have been people who have deeply inspired me because I think it's so easy in this kind of situation to just step back and go, oh, well, I don't know where the pieces are going to land. So I'm just going to wait for things to happen. And while I had projects to be getting on with. Um, I think many of my colleagues uh, found themselves completely suspended and not really able to see any way forward. So in that respect, there are two groups of people that I would particularly like to praise in these last months. One is organizations. Um, organizations um, like BBC Radio 3, um, at the very outset of, of lockdown, they um, launched the BBC Postcards from Composers uh, scheme, which commissioned an array of composers. I was very um, glad to be included in that list, but um, it was an immediate um, solidarity of, of, creati of creative thinkers um, and of organizers and commissioners. Um, in a way, sending us, the creatives, a signal that um, we're not giving up, we're still going to be there, continue writing, what you're doing is relevant and people want to hear what you're doing. So that was extremely supportive and important. So um, like Radio 3, um, an ensemble that I also had, a, uh, or an organisation I had the great joy to work with was Bang on a Can in America who uh, have been hosting marathon, um, their legendary marathon um, programs since the 80s. So they moved everything online and continued to, again, commission new work, um, giving us that kind of beacon of hope that, yes, um, we're not just going to be looking back. Uh, there is a future and we'll continue to support you. And while there are the organizations there were individuals who were also exemplary in how quick they were off the mark to um, create their own content and commissions for people like Vanilla Humphreys or Tom Foster giving concerts from their own homes, completely unsupported by anyone else other than their desire to create and to connect with other musicians. So um, the uh, micro and macrocosmos of the, of the music world, of the organization, galvanizing people together and then individuals keeping those uh, connections going personally i think that's given me a great deal of strength and inspiration to carry on myself because all of a sudden you don't have concerts to go to you're not meeting your normal friends and your community and i felt connected to all of these musicians through these initiatives thank you for that james your nurturing and supporting role I mean it's always been you know something that I've associated with you in your different positions in the industry and and now at the Royal Philharmonic Society it's very specific about the the, the mission what do you see and how do you see things that may have changed or been changing anyway before lockdown but which are accelerated or brought into special focus by what's happened and 
will go forward in a different way. Um, so much to say. I, I think one thing to touch on first, um, I just has come to mind from from what Sarah and Debrinka have said, is that we had a we, through the lockdown, we've had a sort of a occasional uh, digital conversation in which we sort of tried to we assembled a different little a formation of music makers to kind of give music lovers a sort of real candid impression uh, from the horse's mouth, as it were, um, of what what how mus musicians are actually faring through all of this. And 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 something struck me that um, the, the pianist Isa Takana Mason said last year, she said that basically lockdown has been like the ultimate leveler. Um, you know, in, in a sense, we talk quite a bit, Lydia and I have been on panels talking about equity um, and, and gender gender equity. And actually it's been a really equitizing thing. Like she said, you know, you know, I'm stuck at home, Lang Lang stuck at home, you're stuck at home, we're all stuck at home. So like, well, well, you know, we're all starting from the same place. And from that, of course, we've just sort of seen this extraordinary outpouring from, you know, in all, all sorts of different people on um, all sorts of genders. And, um, but of course, in that, you know, it, it's sort of been, it's notable to me that I think women have been given or have 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 proven like you know they're incredible so much that that perhaps the the sort of the age-old structures haven't allowed for perhaps so readily i mean if i just think of um people like i mean the violinist elena urioste just what a vanguard sort of firebrand you know boundless spirit she is you know just think um Oh, just everyone should be following what she's doing like lately. Um, Mezzo soprano Jennifer Johnston with her bite-sized proms. Um, uh, brilliant, brilliant animator um, Polly Ives in Sheffield, who whose concertinis I think have been a salvation for uh, musical salvation for parents around the clock in lockdown. The harpist Olivia Jagos, she's always been enterprising, but her harpy hour um, is uh, you can indulge the pun because it's really good fun. Fenella Humphreys, um, De Brink has mentioned the conductor Tori Longdon, who created the stay-at-home choir with her counterpart Jamie Wright that's been a huge success and then of course um the great Nicola Benedetti who said she was going to set up a foundation and then two seconds later had to completely rethink it digitally and did so in such a vibrant way and um and similar to her as well Kath Arledge I think at the National Children's Orchestra she has just sort of lived on Zoom I think and 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 made such exciting content and and the list goes on and on I would also say as well it's really great to hear um fresh uh, female voices on air as well. I think, you know, Tasman Little has had an extraordinary year and her last year is performing and her Radio 3 show now is really great. It's so good to hear from the more of the artists on, on air and um, and likewise Chi Chi Manico with her show on Classic FM following in, you know, in the footsteps of Debbie Wiseman and Jess Gillen with their shows on, 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 the, on the big radio stations. It's, you know, it's really good to sort of hear more the voices of, of, of female artists in this way. Um, there's a lot of hope, a lot of positivity. I think that's such an interesting point about the levelling. Um, one of the benefits maybe of these last 12 months and also what every artist now is, is, is really asking themselves. Um, and this is an individual question, which it goes to the very essence. What does it mean to be an artist? What is an artist contributing to society? Why, why does this profession matter? Uh, and the conversations that I've had and which I've heard between other artists, um, not just established artists who've you know, been around for long enough to be able to ask them these kind of questions, but youngsters starting out in their careers. Um, and you mentioned Jess, Jess Gilliman, I'm thinking of the, the virtual scratch orchestra that she started up and that, that specifically in so much of her life, as much as performing on stage, she has this sense of uh, responsibility 
to the community at large, to society at large, to promote music, music education. Nikki Benedetti, of course, is another brilliant example of that. Um, and uh, I'm going back to Sarah. When we were speaking earlier, you were talking about the teenagers in the National Youth Orchestra and what drives them to grab hold of this agency that you make available to them. And, and you'll explain it much better than I can, their sense of you know, what, it, what their responsibilities are. Yeah, I guess we've created an environment where being in the National Youth Orchestra is about having those responsibilities and taking them so that they're, they're very passionate about social equity and they're playing their part in that through opening up their art form to other young people. And they're opening it up, I mean, in lots of different platforms, but fundamentally partly to other young musicians who are coming up behind them. So we're trying to really move on from that culture in classical music where you might lock away the precious things that your special teacher has told you, but actually a bit more hip hop and say, okay, I got taught this, I'm passing it on to someone who hasn't heard it yet. And not so much doing that as every young person becomes a teacher, but much more like we can lean on each other, we can share. So mentoring really is something that isn't hierarchical. It's not that I know better, it's just that I know a thing and I'm really ready to pass it on to you and help you on your journey. Um, a, lot of, a lot of that work with young people is targeted to young people who have musical ability. They've got so far, but they're, they're stuck with their own opportunities. Um, and being part of a teenage environment is very inspiring to young people. So realizing the impact they can have on their own generation. So that we just move on from this idea that when you're young as a classical musician, you have to learn a lot of technical stuff. You have to advance really quickly. You have to show your mastery before you can do anything meaningful and actually build right in from the beginning that you that sharing actually helps to consolidate learning and that sh sharing is the right thing to do. Let's build a musical community together and let's, let's be generous with our art form. That also, it helps them to, to feel that agency over what's happening in their art form going forward. So I'm, I'm, creating a future for classical music. Um, I'm not just waiting to be, I'm not just waiting for the future when classical music might let me in. Mm. I'm part of it because I'm making something happen right now. So that's a big part of what drives them. I think also the situation has, it, it's given people the sense of not just responsibility, but, but an opportunity permission, if you like. We, we can do this. There are many things, like I said before, we, many things we can't do. These are things we can do. And I suppose, again, with the younger generation, I'm not saying that every generation isn't capable of working with the digital media, but of course there is a natural um, uh, sort of uh, familiarity with the equipment that's at our disposal in a younger generation, and they're not afraid of it. Um, and the invention is, is incredible. And, and one of the things that we've talked about a lot with our artists and colleagues is that while digital has, so often been the only way in which musicians can reach audiences at the moment while the concert halls are closed. It's not going to go away once people can go back into the concert halls and it's it's a, a ground in which um, the creation of new kinds of music and new other kinds of art forms blending live and digital work actually becomes something that's valid in its own right and has a whole potential for the future too. I mean Dobrinka as a in your writing and in the writing of others, your relationship with you know, acoustic instruments, digital techniques and so on, how, 
has that dramatically changed over the past 12 months or is it a continuum anyway for you? For me, it's been a massive learning curve. I'm I'm not technologically minded. <laughs> so the, existing in the digital world has been probably one of the greatest changes for, for me personally. Um, uh, but I'm deeply grateful for it. Um, it's in no way uh, going to replace um, live interaction for, for me anyway. But I think it's essential and going back to what Sarah was talking about, about the responsibility that we have, and I, I say we, um, as a generation or two um, beyond the teenagers of today, who I feel the most compassion for, and the, the, I think they find themselves in such a difficult situation now to be motivated to carry on in this profession. Likewise, in recent graduates, I think this is probably the most difficult time for any young musician going into the world of classical music. It's already niche enough. So <laughs> to imagine yourself, um, this is where I think uh, role models, uh, this is a, a recurring theme when we talk about women in music, role models is even more important. And um, role models until now, I guess you could go to a concert, there's a pre-concert talk, there's a piece by a woman composer in the program, there's performers, um, but the visibility and the dialogue facilitated by technology has been priceless and to have that constant connection with the younger generation I have found extremely important, so I've given some um, masterclasses with the Royal Northern College of Music and also with uh, conductors in isolation, um, as well as uh, Cornish young musicians. I'm talking to them later this week. And um, the fact that I don't even have to leave my home, but I can still hopefully impart a little bit of my own excitement and some of the memory of what it's like to be excited about the live performance, um, keeping that flame alive and that visibility um, alive for young musicians is I think one of the most important responsibilities that I feel as someone who is relatively settled in their career I, I can I've had wonderful opportunities but what are these young musicians looking forward to um, I hope that I can inspire them to believe that there is a great future for them as well I think that's right. The opportunities that have just been snatched away from young people um, in the arts and elsewhere and our responsibility to try to uh, make new paths for them and keep up the hope. Um, James, from that point of view, again, going back to the accessibility which is offered by the digital techniques that we've really sort of accelerated over these past 12 months um, but in other ways too how how are the young people that the Royal Philharmonic Society is supporting how, how do you how do you see the the new kinds of futures the new kinds of levels of hopes and expectations now panning out I think Sarah's really crystallized this already about you know it's about really listening to those young people that I think the whole system today has been very much sort of feeding down of the way it's done and now we, we you know we're listening to other people setting the tempo um the you know i think over last year it was like we were looking to see who's going to do what and, and and actually you know some of the the sort of the bigger sort of more 
hierarchical entities didn't have the sort of adaptability to do that. And suddenly it's sort of like, you know, actually that some of the most magical stuff happened with the most simple resource in the most simple places. And that's really interesting. And it says a lot about where classical music can flourish. Um, and you know, in a way it sort of like throws out the whole script that we've been perpetuating for decades, possibly centuries. And so there's a real moment here. And, you know, the, you know, so many of the conversations I seem to find myself in now are saying, you know, yeah, but will, will we retain much of that or will we go back? Will, will habit eventually take over and, and will that be a thing? I don't know. It's, um, you know, already young people, it's so good what Sarah's doing because, you know, already I find that teenagers, you know, it depend, it's a pot lottery depending on who their teacher is, depending on what school they've been to, depending on who their parents are, whether they already feel they can have a voice. We've started at the RPS uh, a, a thing called the Young, the young Classical Writers Prize. It was actually a, a, a legacy um, came from a, a classical music writer wanting us to do something about it. And I thought, well, we don't hear young people writing much about classical music. And it's something Sarah and I were interested in when I worked with her at the MIO. And, so we've had 110 applications for this thing. It's just a little prize. And, and I've sort of started reading them. And, and it's really, you know, the best moments are the moments when you suddenly see a young person sort of like take that little step and say something in a voice that's not entirely their own. You know, I think some of them are like essays and they like, they're written exactly what they think the RPS wants to hear. But other times, just now and again, you think, oh, this is taking a step. But then I remember when I went to work with Sarah, I had worked at the Royal College of Music for some years and I arrived at the MIO and Sarah was fairly new there too. And I think I'd written a, a sort of really proficient bit of copy and absolutely the, 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 the proper way. And Sarah got, she sort of looked at me and says, I don't understand all of this, it's in code. And you know, I, I was crestfallen for all of three minutes and then I thought she's absolutely right. We, we have sort of just sealed up the, the, the sort of the, the vessel, the entity and said, this is how it's done. And yet this experience that's happened to us this year has cracked it open, smashed its smithereens and its proprietary, uh, its sort of sense of proprietiness and whatever with, with it. And so the opportunity now is to do exactly what Sarah says, but not just sort of expect Sarah because she is, you know, the custodian of all these young people, but all of us to be saying, well, listen, how, how can we put this thing back together in a different way and allow the air into it and the light into it and the voices into it? I think, um, I mean, one of the things I've noticed is I'm, I'm speaking from the point of view of the art, artist management world and in the classical artist management world, it is a, uh, you know, it takes a while to learn um, how to do it, uh, get your international network figured out, make your contacts, understand how artists tick. When, people come into our company to begin with. Traditionally, you know, it takes a while for them to find their feet and their learning and it's all about learning and it's all about being mentored and it's all about being shown how to do the work. But of course, the thing that has immediately given an opportunity for everybody at every level in the company to contribute in a meaningful and powerful way are the conversations about uh, inclusion and accessibility and equality and that even more so over the past 12 months I mean we've we've certainly had a, a battle on our hands uh, because the day-to-day the, the -day work of trying to you know have artists in a place where they can actually perform and, and actually earn some money to put some food on the table and we're playing this game of I call it a cross between whack-a-mole and Jenga to, to just try and get you know, dates in the, in, the, in the diaries so that people can keep playing. So that takes up an enormous amount of time, but I'm so proud of how the, you know, everybody in the company, including the 
newest recruit have stepped up um, and played their part. And we had um, uh, we took part in the, the Music Masters I'm In program, which is all about embedding um, inclusion and equality and recognizing, you know, how that needs to be at the center of everybody's um, working strategy, professional strategy, development strategy. Uh, but again, it's going back to what James, you were saying before about the leveling nature of what we've been through over the past 12 months. Everybody has something valid to say. Everybody has a lived experience which needs to go into the conversation. And again, ironically, because we're all isolated, we're actually talking to each other much more and more readily because of, you know, platforms like Zoom uh, and others. Um, and and uh, <laughs> the fact that calling a meeting together of the most senior people in the organization at 10 minutes notice is, 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 has been quite useful. Uh, so I won't talk about silver linings because that's pretty crass with all of the horrors that, that go on. But I think we have learned some very, very, very valuable lessons which will be part of our lives going onwards. And, uh, and I have to say in our office where there are um, you know, a large number of women in, in positions of influence and, and playing hugely important roles in, in leading the business and in supporting the business. Um, all of those women without exception across the generations, across many different nationalities, um, have been such a force and, and such a mutually supportive force as well, because it would be very easy to have lost heart over these last few months. And that I think we've succeeded in keeping going. Sarah, I, I had thought just sort of connect, which may, maybe connects with all of that, but it, it relates to audiences and who the work is for. And I think that um, it's something that's really easy to forget when we're feeling like custodians of something, or we've got responsibility for nurturing something, but it's, it's absolutely necessary to be flexible, to reach the people that we want to reach. So I, I've really found it fascinating to be in an organization that's been around since 1948, more or less with exactly the same pillars. So the pillars are created out of the school holidays and the need to put a huge symphony orchestra on a, on a large scale concert tour. And so no matter what you do with those 10 days rehearsal, fundamentally you're all the time jamming any sort of creativity or development of skills around social responsibility or collaboration, you're jamming it into a process that is leading to a large scale orchestral concert tour. So it's been amazing to see what you can do when you haven't got any large-scale concert tours to put on. But also, I think this relates to the artist agency thing. It's, what I've realised is that I have lovely, dedicated, I'm really profoundly committed people working for me with great skills. But every single organisational process we have is defined by putting on a large-scale orchestral concert tour. And those are not the same skills that you need if you're thinking, OK, we want to reach teenagers. We want our young people whose absolute superpower is teen to teen communication, you know, young role models, men and women from all different backgrounds who equally have this superpower and this ability to, we know that classical music can be profoundly powerful for young people because we have 164 young people for whom it is profoundly powerful and they are just ordinary teenagers who've got the opportunity to discover. So we want to deploy them. Well, this, this rigid structure since 1948 is not giving us the flexibility to deploy them. 
And not only that, we don't have the skills because we're so focused on these. No, we have the skills, but we don't have the processes because we're so focused on this is how we do things because we have to get this on. So I do feel in many ways, this has been a fascinating year, not just for what we've discovered we can do in terms of technology, but actually to actually say, um, what skills do we need if we're going to deploy all these young people? What processes do we need? How do we work together? How do we form collaborations? And fundamentally, how are we going to be flexible? And it's really challenging because I think our art form, it's highly internationalized and it's a lot of it is on a very, very large scale. So flexibility of, of a, a large scale internationalized art form, um, very hierarchical, who's good, who's on their way to being good, all of that stuff makes it quite difficult to, to put audiences in the mix. Like anybody is an audience, anybody is an audience, anybody can love and be profoundly touched by the art form. So people want to get back to what they know because that's what their that, that that's what their skills are aligned to. But really, I wanted to know where are audiences in the conversation? I went on a, a course called Cultural Reset. It was mainly for the theatre sector, but I absolutely was like, I have to go to this environment of other people. So I wrote this application. It was so like, please, I need to be stimulated by some different people. And, and that's what the conversation was about. How have the arts got so obsessed with their structures and their ways of doing things that they have forgotten audiences? How do we put audiences at the heart of cultural reset? So that's just a bit of a provocation, but I think that's so interesting. Well, without the audience, <laughs> where are we? James. Just touching on that, uh, a year ago at the Association of British Orchestras conference, I led a discussion on uh, repertoire and sort of encouraging people to sort of talk, talk to each other about the repertoire they program, why they program it, why the familiar things, why, you know, could we actually, rather than sort of be very, you know, hold tight the, 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 our little treasures, we actually share intel and, and encourage other people. I mean, one of the things that often organizations only share their repertoire when they're we're putting them into a clash diary is to, to say, right, we're doing Lark Ascending, so you back off. And um, the, the sort of the, the, the concept, there was, you know, everyone was very receptive to that, but the sort of feeling was, well, with the long planning cycles and also the audience tells us what it wants and everything and all of these things, it didn't seem possible. Then kaboom, two months later, this happens. And what's been so astonishing to me is in the last few months in the digital offerings we've seen some of the, the big 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 like orchestras and all sorts of people do suddenly we've seen black composers and we've seen female composers uh, th uh, three years ago Lydia you and I were on a panel at the conference and you know I played a bit of Sina Baczewicz uh, a Polish composer who died in the 1960s to people no one had heard of her and it's so heartening to see BBC Symphony BBC Scottish um, Symphony Orchestra did a piece of hers recently LSO have done two pieces of hers in lockdown we're hearing black I've heard more black composers in the last few months than I've heard in my life and you sort of think all the old reasons and all the old excuses you know that, that what the audience wants and everything sort of we we, we sort of forgot those those excuses and those well, it's the, also it's those planning cycles it's those deathly planning cycles if i want change i'll have it in three years ah <laughs> you know i'm this orchestra won't even be here in three years i just really want to hold on to being able to reflect the world as it is with you know maybe six month planning cycles are sensible, maybe 12 months, more or less, you know roughly what you're doing. But from an artistic point of view, you need to be able to respond to the times we're in. Otherwise you can't make your art form relevant. That, those tectonic shifts 
in the planning cycles now, in the lead times. That is such an opportunity. It really does feel like the pieces of the industry as we know it have been chucked up in the air. Nobody, nobody's quite sure where they're falling down. It's, it's actually, it's, it is an opportunity, it really is an opportunity. I know that's another cliche. I remember before, I, I'm, I'm at, I've gone on record with this, although I believe it was anonymous, it was for a report. I was interviewed in the November of 2019. Yeah, just before Christmas. It was a report about um, the state of music in the UK and I and internationally and I was talking about how crazy it was and the way that artists and orchestras were racing around the world and they were taking on madder and madder schedules and people were getting ill and their you know their backs were going and their shoulders were going and their necks were going and something had to change <laughs> that kaboom moment did happen as you said James but that uh, chucking up of all the pieces in the air and not entirely knowing where they're going to come down again. And, and orchestras, instead of in, instead of last December, crazily saying to us as managers, we've got to get our, our brochure to the printers. We've got to get our 21, 22 brochure to the printers now. And the poor artists being asked, well, what do you want to play in that recital in you know, June, 2022? And the, the honest artist who will say, how on earth am I supposed to come up with that now? And, and, and now we have something which is much more reflective of the moment. And that takes us back to the, um, well, it doesn't take us back to it. It, it. It's all interlocking, reflecting the moment, reflecting the whole audience, reflecting the whole of society. And the fact that if we don't uh, allow those different voices to be heard, those different stories to be told. I still find myself quoting Hannah Kendall after all these years, James, after that ABO conference. Those uh, people with different voices and different stories will not come into the hall. And for us behind the scenes as managers, we have to reflect those different voices as well in the sort of choices that we suggest to our artists and to our partners. So, there's, so, there's so much ways in which this whole Rubik's Cube is like, locked together though isn't there because uh, when we did the mighty river project in the summer and young people were so passionate to go out and discover black composers and lift use their platform to lift up works that hadn't been heard by audiences and they um, heard from all different sorts of mentors and role models it was a very exciting project one of our musicians reflected that he, he was going off to conservatoire and the what he described as the algorithm for his success was entirely based on playing the works of white male composers. And he didn't know how he was gonna bring his passion for diversity into his music education in such a way that anyone would believe he'd become an excellent musician. Because if he didn't play these works that were this algorithm to turn him into a good musician, nobody would back him as a good musician. And so he felt like, okay, I have to, I'm a young person, but I actually, the world I live in as a young person, I want that world to be in my art form, but I'm passionate about this art form and the, the gate for success means leave the world that I'm passionate about behind, go into this conservatoire for four or five years, come out a success according to that algorithm and then go, um, now hang on, how am I going to join up with the world that I live in? So this problem is like quite deep rooted, I think, about diversity of voices and styles of learning and um, what constitutes good, basically. 
the constitution. Yeah, Dobrinka. Exactly. I think what everyone has been saying, I think the, one of the things I hope that we can take away from the last year is this um, bringing everything down to a more manageable human scale in a way, the, the cycles that Lydia you were talking about and predicting what you want to play in June 2022. Well, there's no way that I think our industry would have had the ability to react to what was going on in America at the beginning of the summer had those programs been Pro programmed two years in advance that one of the strengths of this year is that the art world has managed to react so quickly because everything is in this suspenseful um, situation so programming could be uh, done on the spot and uh, react to the time that we're living in and that's one of the things that contemporary music does you're writing for the moment for now that's why a premiere is exciting well I hope that it's that people <laughs> will start to realize that that's why it's exciting because it's showing the pulse of the times that we're living in and whether it's um, promoting a, a black musician, a black composer, a female composer, um, these are the, 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 um, this is the fabric and the, the threads of our own generation in our own time. And I think this year with all of its tragedy has allowed us to bring things on a much more human scale and start to reflect the pulse of our time. I think also the the impact of the restrictions on our travel and what will doubtless continue to be restrictions for quite a long time give us a, um, the imperative of looking more locally, not losing sight of a, a global perspective, but really um, celebrating and cherishing um what is closer to home and and music and other arts which have more intimacy um and also talking again about that that definition of, of excellence what makes and what makes an artist a great artist there are it, it's not so much a question of either or i find myself saying this a lot is it, it it's and there are different ways of expressing there are different ways of doing something great to contribute as an artist. And there are many different lines now running in parallel, which previously may have been perceived in more of a hierarchy. And surely that's a, that's a positive outcome. You could be a great artist in front of all kinds of audiences. So that's another, you know, that's another thing that we're perhaps a bit confused about sometimes that we're sending young people, but you know, they're burning out tearing around the world to prove themselves a great artist in front of these audiences who are apparently connoisseurs, but they could be a great artist. They can be great in a simpler way. I'm just worried about that way in which young artists have to tear about the place to prove that they're good. And that also narrows what they can put into their portfolio. So there's lots of different ways in which the, you know, the full, the full human being is not always able to um, grow in the art form and also what fascinates me about what Brinker said in relation to the, the um, what, what piano concerto are going to play in three years time is that it's very hard then for a young soloist to, to, to take any risks and commission uh, because they've, they're they going to have to persuade a management of a risk they want to take for three years time in a, in a slightly risk averse environment when it comes to commissioning in the first place so so they will definitely choose something that is safe where they've already been proven to to be a successful musician of that composer 
So they're not really building into their rep repertoire, I don't think, enough um, new work. So that's a, a, a kind of another conundrum, I think. Well, that leads us neatly to, to James and the Royal Philharmonic Society and its its mission to 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 make that new work happen, to support that new work happening, and to try to mitigate some of that risk. <laughs> so is that a question? No, sorry, um, I'm just telling you what you do. <laughs> gosh, I mean, we're just—it's such big tectonic stuff. All of this, I I think I don't know if my thoughts in 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 response to what's been said speak specifically to commissioning, but just to, you know, what kind of classical music profession do we want to create? Do what, you know, when, what, or what, what sort of, how do we want history to judge this chapter of the history of classical music? And, you know, has it kept pace with the sort of the boundless creativity, the, the incredible full momentum that we celebrate in all the composers past? And that really, but, you know, you know, something that was on my mind today, I mean, this doesn't really speak to the, 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 the issue of International Women's Day, um, which, I, you know, there's lots more to talk about. But just to say, you know, this morning, uh, the Association of British Orchestras and the City of London Sinfonia and Orchestras Live released a report about orchestras and healthcare. And they're saying, look at the role that orchestras can play in society. And uh, they've, they've done a survey and there's a lot of statistics about that. And the, the guy who is in charge of social prescribing for the NHS, so that's basically, instead of, you know, the GP giving somebody pills, it's giving them pottery or it's giving them classical music, um, you know, is really taken by this. And that, you know, those, so those, 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 there's a few people in classical music who are uh, fostering a conversation there. That seems to me to be the whole, that could be the legitimizing thing that we need. Um, for classical music. We, everyone in this conversation, and probably most of the people listening to it, we love classical music, not just because we're weirdo nerds. I mean, possibly I am slightly, but actually because it has done no less than help us know who we are. It's given us our confidence, our voice, our sort of stability, our sanity, our everything. And we do not talk about classical music in those terms. And, and what is likely to happen with this healthcare report is that a lot of people in the sector will see it as the preserve and the interest of the education departments which is almost seen as an adjunct to classical music. A thing, you know, it's in, a, it's in an office at the top of the building or in the basement, or it doesn't even have an office, or, you know, in a separate department. And, and we have sort of compartmentalized music's role in everyday life, entirely in classical music, much to our peril. And we've got to be bold and clever now in the way we unpackage that and not see it as the education department's responsibility or Sarah Alexander at the NYO's responsibility, but all of our responsibility. And I think the important thing to say is that doesn't mean changing our practice necessarily. So not everybody has to pay in care homes, but we have to make the narrative much stronger that when we're playing classical music in a concert hall, it's still having that, you know, that, that positive effect on well-being for a lot of people. And that changing the whole narrative. Sarah was right when I went to the NYO and presented my tidy script about, about classical music. We're writing in code. We've been writing in code for centuries. And the entity itself doesn't require that. The entity has incredible universal properties, but we've lost confidence in what those are. And yeah, sorry, that's probably not the answer you were looking for, Lydia, but there it is. <laughs> no, 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 I think, I'm, I'm, I think it's absolutely where this conversation has to go. And it does keep linking back to that earlier question, what is value and what is excellence in what it is that we're doing? And it has, it pervades, you know, every area of society. It is transformational. It, it has, it matters. And maybe those who seek to put it in a box that's labelled elitist or, or, or just for some and not for others need 
you know, need to recognize that. Sarah. I, I feel aware that in this whole conversation I have on for International Women's Day, I haven't advocated for women because I, I, I don't see any reason why I would think about a young person any other than a diverse community of young people. And also that I wouldn't make, I would only make choices around the role models. I mean, there are so many brilliant artists in the world. You've got to choose somebody. So choose people who also across the array of artists you're working with are great role models for young people. We can be simple about it. We can, we can make sure that our, our art form is giving many people opportunities and is always diverse and is always interesting um, and we should, should be beyond the point in a way where we need to have a particular conversation that says let's let's talk about women in classical music because it's International Women's Day so I'm just aware that I haven't even mentioned it and it, and I, it occurred to me that's because I don't I don't think about it as a separate subject. I think I said at the start I wanted to celebrate women in music. And I think that this conversation has celebrated music itself and all of those who are engaged with it and making the efforts to, to take it out of any one particular box. Um, but uh, as you said, the role models, wherever they come from, um, are, are, are crucial in, in giving that inspiration, in leading and leading us into, you know, myriad new directions which are all for the good um that's that responsibility and the and and certainly the way that we've talked about young people and taking taking the, the energetic way that they've engaged with that and proven that they're worthy of having of being given that agency and running with it is a is a really inspiring thing i think and um, that makes me think you know something I've, i found myself thinking before that you know a plurality of approaches is so important so one of the things i really like about the prs foundation's key change initiative which if listeners don't know um, was set up a few years ago and any organization can sign up to it and say that by um, within a few years that they will have committed to some something towards some kind of 50 50 approach in their organization or their practices um on, on the gender front and it's been taken up by a lot of people um, internationally but the great thing is you do it to your strengths and you do it in your own way. A lot of people have quizzed me and I know you too, they do over the last few years about quotas, whether they're a good thing or bad thing. Well, they don't, I don't follow quotas myself because that, that's not my driver, but for other people that can be a real driver. And, and so, you know, coming to Sarah's point, I think that, you know, it's great. Like Sarah's a crusader, there's no question about that. And, and she's doing what she's doing. There is for other people, it's actually the, the focus on a very specific thing or, or a particular minority that is, where they find their strength and their agency. And I really wanted to, I'm, I'm sort of like just dragging the conversation this way and for because I just feel I'd kick myself if I didn't within this hour name check two people. And the reason I want to do this is because I think you mentioned earlier on about um, sort of who has the power and the influence. And I, I feel that it's so easy for us to think of like those of us who sort of gradually worked our ways, you know, let's re reading our biographies at the start, you know, we've, we've, all, we've all come some way, but you know, sometimes if, we, if they were to make a list of the, the voices most worth hearing in classical music right now, which would be a very interesting exercise, I would say two people that should be on it, and I imagine most of your listeners won't know these names, but they're worth knowing. First of all, a woman called Elizabeth de Brito. She runs um, uh, a thing called The Daffodil Perspective on Twitter, and it's also a little radio show. And she basically commits in that to uncovering uh, un works by unfamiliar deceased and living um, female composers, and not just women as well, other um, 
minorities. And also uh, a soprano called Gabriella Delaccio. And she runs a digital platform called Donna, D-O-N-N-E. And these two women entirely of their own volition, not because they're paid to do it, not because they work for an organization, not because they get any funding to do it. They just decided they found it their calling to really speak out and say things for, um, for female artists, female musicians. And they're amazing. They are such vibrant, spirited conversationalists on Twitter. They're an exemplar of how to use social media. And for no ends, really, apart from just, you know, just hopefully it might inspire somebody. And, you know, talking about role models, you know, anybody should follow them. And we should, we should all be paying more attention to people like that, not just the sort of the perceived giants, really. Sorry, just have to shoehorn that in there. I don't even know them, but I just think they're brilliant. Well, thank you. We all need to continue learning. We need to listen and we need to read and we need to take in that, um, take in that inspiration from, from every angle. I do have a question for Dabrinka, though. Have you had female role models as composers? Did you have to go out and find women to listen to, to be inspired by, or did you always like, have a world of female composers around you? Um, I've, I certainly feel that the time that I was born in has really helped me because my first composition teacher was Ruth Birchmore, a woman. Later on, I studied with Diana Burrell, so I had immediate um, access and um, was surrounded by women. So I didn't even question it, to be honest. It wasn't even the, uh, uh, the idea of role model in the way that we talk about it now. It wasn't that they weren't there. They were they were right um, by me. And then the, the, the music of Sofia Gubaidulina or Kaya Sariajo, who um, were, was at the time that I started out, was accessible. So I think it's about generational opportunities really, which are getting bigger and bigger. But what I'd say is that I think we have to be careful not to think that a little bit like economics, um, everyone expects economics to grow and grow um, and equally society to get better and better. I think that, that we should be careful of being complacent about that and continue this kind of conversation and awareness of um, trying to show as many people's creative um, language as possible because it's easy to slip back um, and it's easy to um, revert to learned old ways and one thing that the pandemic has taught us is that I think we've managed to have a great leap of uh, programming excitement and uh, risk-taking as you were saying earlier so um, I'm very grateful for that. We have to keep enriching the context don't we and and out of that then such a variety of voices can be encouraged and can be released somehow. Exactly. Uh, but it is an enriching of the context. It's not an alternative and it's not sort of pushing things away because somehow they shouldn't be relevant anymore. I think that's a very dangerous point of view. Uh, but allowing great art to thrive and be inspired by what's going on around it. I remember one of my um, most inspiring tutors when I was an undergraduate was uh, it was our, our, our medieval and renaissance music history um, and the inspiring part of it was that the approach was to contextualize teaching us about the music written at that time by having it in the context of what was going on politically in literature in other art forms and in society in general and and context is everything and at the moment we find ourselves in a in a bizarre one, in a surreal one, but also one where so many different voices are being heard and the accessibility that digital offers.
Um, so that, um, that richness is something to be celebrated. Thank you to our host, Lydia Connolly, and guests Sarah Alexander, James Murphy and Dobrinka Tabakova for joining us for this special International Women's Day episode. And also thank you to Robert Cochran, composer of our theme tune music, and Merlin Thomas, our editor. If you would like to hear more The Culture Bar episodes, then just subscribe to our channel. <laughs>